Hey everybody, welcome to Literary Disco on Lit Hub Radio, episode 148, Outside Articles. It's been a while since we've discussed magazine journalism, so for today's episode, we're going to take a dive into three different articles that appeared in Outside Magazine over the last five years. All three were chosen from a list that the outside editors themselves declared the best stories we've told. This is Literary Disco, the last book club you'll ever need. Uh, We're without Todd this week, so we are Julia and Ryder, two old friends who love to read, debate, and sometimes even agree. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong, and joining me this week is essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel. Hey. Hey. Finally got rid of Todd. I uh, know. Well, this is amazing. This is two episodes in a row where it's just two of us. And that, I mean, bef- you guys have done, you guys did one episode without me a couple years ago. Um, but this yes. is the first time I've done episodes without either one of you. And now I'm getting two in a row. So uh, we, we, we're going to see how this goes. <laughs> and, I I, and I'm very curious. You haven't listened to the other episode yet. I'm very curious, like how different <laughs> the, how different the tones are going to be. I'm hoping ours will be superior, just because I'm competitive. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I, I mean, I expected Todd and mine to be much more sort of frivolous and uh, that and like maybe jokey. That was my assumption, but it ended up being tearful and very earnest. So maybe you and I will be more flippant and, and jokey. Who the fuck knows? I don't know. I, yeah, I haven't <laughs> hung out just with you since I've seen you in person and that has been a couple of years now. So I don't know. Maybe we'll yeah. have a huge falling out. Tonight on, on this yeah, episode. Right now. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's bring, let's disagree about something really intensely. Uh, um, um, so I picked these outside magazine articles. I'm just going to get right to it. That's what you and me. Yeah, please. Like. We're not going to talk about totally. baseball or some stupid garbage. Um, <laughs> Um, I picked these articles because last week you guys talked about what you read over the summer. And I have many plans for summer reading and many things I like to read on the beach and stuff. But if I'm honest with myself, summertime is the time that I will click on an article like one of these just on a whim. And then like 45 minutes I'm later, I'm still reading it. So totally. um, and I actually get outside magazine as a paper magazine, too. So I've read a lot of articles by them, and I was just excited to like go on a deep dive um, with all their different kinds of writing. What did you think? Yeah. So, well, let's talk about in general what like because I I I guess I've read Outside Magazine before. I'm pretty sure I have, but reading these three articles really drove home. I don't know, or it sort of gave me a cross section of what I imagine your tip like the outside uh, style and approaches. And I really like it. Like it's this yeah. weird blend of like, um, you know, there's, 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 there's a, a first person-ness, like a first person self-consciousness, which I love in journalism. And they are like embrace that wholeheartedly. There's clearly an adventurous, uh, you know, outdoorsy, but like on the extreme edges of outdoorsiness and then there's also environmentalism like a huge concern with environmentalism and like and that's present in all three of these stories and um i don't know now i want to subscribe to outside magazine (laughs) they're amazing yeah it's really okay so you i know you've read outside magazine writing and most people have because the most famous examples of books that started as outside magazine articles are into thin air and into the wild those right. both started as essays of this nature that we're about to talk about them. Um, as as we know, John Krakauer, or I, I'm assuming people know this, but if you haven't, you should go read Into Thin Air because it's amazing. But um, he was just a reporter for Outside Magazine who was like, I'm going to climb Everest with everybody else. And then he ended up being on this disastrous expedition. Um, so one thing that I really love about Outside Magazine and these articles is it doesn't they're like somewhere between an essay and like news in that these things are timely, but none of the stories are really over, um, which we'll get to, I think, when we talk about the the murder one. Um, so the person is always like in the middle of some adventure and then the end is always like, well, this is a crazy thing that's happening. Good luck out there, everybody. 
Um, right. And I, I also really love that vibe um, because some of these articles turn into books, some of them never appear again, and some of them you can go down this like amazing rabbit hole of research of what happened and how these sports or experiences develop. Mostly, mostly what I wanted when I'm reading an, a, any of these articles, mostly what I want to be is a writer for Outside Magazine. <laughs> like <it's, laughs> yeah. it seems like it's like the ultimate journalist. You know, it's like the combination of when I was a kid and I used to pull down National Geographic magazines from my parents' shelf and like flip through them and be like, these places exist and this world is so crazy. And, you know, that sort of like, what would it be like to go on an adventure? And they, they, all of their stories seem to imbue that sense of adventure, you know, into the writing itself. Um, and, and a sense of humor often too. It's, it's, it's interesting, and, and but they they don't come down very like at least in the three that we read they don't really reach many conclusions. They sort no. of were like yeah, like you were saying, there's this thing out there. It happens. Check it out, and then you know, and in that way, it kind of reminded me for for both good and bad of um, also Vice. You know, the sort mm-hmm. of like dude bro Vice magazine. Let's go drink beers and investigate drug use in some foreign country or, you know, whatever. It's like, I think yeah. Vice has changed a lot, but Vice nowadays is a whole different animal. I actually really like the the show on HBO. I feel like it's pretty good news. But back in the day when Vice magazine first started and it was this sort of like skate punk, you know, stick our middle finger up to like traditional journalism. It had this yeah. like dude bro-y, I don't know. So there's a little bit of that there in, in here, especially in the the tuber, which we'll get to. But um, which one do you yeah. want to talk about first? Uh, um, let's talk about the tuber last. Let's talk about the free diving one first, because I found that so incredibly stressful. I need to get over with <laughs> Yeah, I was just gonna say one more thing before we get into this. Um, part of the reason yeah. this was at top of mind for me is I read an interesting, a really interesting op-ed I think in the New York Times about Everest this year. And if you're keeping up with any oh, kind yeah. of environmental news, you'll have heard that like there there's huge overcrowding on Mount Everest, um, and a bunch of people died just because they're literally standing in line. It's like Six Flags <laughs> or something. Um, but this op-ed was about how this kind of writing, like the kind of writing that has worshipped Everest um, and worshipped mountain climbers specifically, like created this problem by creating all this demand to go on the mountain. So right. that was, it's just a really interesting lens to look at these <laughs> these things through. Um, and it's also specifically why I didn't pick like a mountain climbing or skiing adventure story because it's so right. close to... Um, the news. So anyway, free diving, go for it. Yeah. So this is an article called Open Your Mouth and You're Dead by James Nestor. Uh, and he covers the 2011 free diving competition in Greece, which is an event where competitors from all around the world dive as deep as they can without oxygen tanks. Um, and it's pretty crazy. People are passing out. Uh, we'll put links to all of these articles. We have the three articles. We'll put links on our, our website. Um, but yeah, so this one, it's, it opens with somebody basically passing out on their way up to the surface. Um, and he describes how this competition works. People like a game of poker declare how deep they're going to go to the judges, but it's all a guessing game where, you know, like I'll say, I want to go a hundred meters and Julia, who's in competition with me, won't know that I said that. So then she'll try and go as far as she can go. So she'll say 150, but it, it, it's very confusing. But ultimately, these people are going so deep into the water with a line attached to their foot um, in case something goes wrong. And then they're just holding their breath, letting their lungs essentially collapse on themselves and their internal organs shrink as, and you know, their brains be depleted of oxygen. And then they turn around and come back up to the surface. And oftentimes, uh, people pass out for minutes on end. And, uh, so witnessing this competition, James Nestor is describing the sort of horror of watching people essentially, you know, become very, very close to death over and over again for the sake of a world record or a personal record or a national record. Um, yeah, I found this really hard to read. 
I honestly had to take a break from it in the middle because it is so, I mean, people are basically just on the edge of drowning themselves. And at least in this article, like they're not really grappling with that. It's just like any sport where you're trying to (laughs) reach a new human limit. Like it's very like, what a weird sport. I think it's the most, the second most deadly sport after base jumping, which is seems like the stupidest thing you could possibly do but when I read about free diving all I think is like how much willpower does it take to like to do this you know to dive down in the water and to intentionally swim down knowing your chances of drowning yourself and why I mean the article or the essay really it kind of gets at that but it's it's very strange and one of the um one of the details that I've never thought about that I thought was really interesting that this pointed out is like, it's also a horrible sport to watch. Like you just yeah. watch people jump into the water and then they disappear until they come back or don't come back. And that's it. So what, what is this? You know, it's just people being alone with their mind and their body almost drowning. What did you think? Yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't know. So I have a I have a friend who was a big spearfisher, and um, and he took me spearfishing, um, and I'm you know just like I could dive you know ten feet, and I would my my lungs would be burning, and I'd be panicking. And he would, but he told me about one time when he was spearfishing. I think it was a dolphin or a turtle like swam by him, and he decided to follow it, and he kept following it, and he said he reached this point of um euphoria where you just forget that you need to breathe and like you know when you've passed like a certain depth or a certain minute mark of holding your breath um i forget that there's actually a term for it like something happens where you reach this like high and Mm -hmm. people drown often um and i recently reconnected with this friend randomly over email we hadn't talked for probably five or six years and um, he had a near-death experience in a pool doing breath work, which I'm assuming was because he was training for uh, spearfishing. Um, and he he spent like three minutes on the bottom of a pool and luckily somebody rescued him. But he, he said oh he was God. breath training. So, yeah, I mean, I, this this shit terrifies me. I like I would never do this. And I'm, I would never really I, I have a hard time supporting it as a um, as a sport, like as a concept. I, I just. I mean, I guess everybody can do what they want with their own body, but like even reading this article, I felt like, you know, I felt like my perverse fascination was contributing to more injuries and more deaths. It, it's, I, it was like, why? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm also, I'm pretty against uh, a lot of uh, mountain, mountain climbing too, like the Everest stuff. Like I'm just like, when it gets to a, a certain level of extremity where it becomes about like proving yourself to such a degree, um, I get uncomfortable. Like I was reminded most of, I remember there was this period in like, I don't know, second grade, third grade. um, And maybe, I don't know if this was just a West coast thing or just a, a a boys in Northern California thing or whatever. But there was a, there was a thing Uh where everybody started trying to knock each other out where they would like fold your arms across your chest and, breathe a bunch of times and then like hold your breath and have somebody slam you in the chest and you would like pass out. And that was like the goal of this stupid game. But like it became a thing that spread throughout the school where like everybody was trying to knock each other out or knock themselves, have have somebody knock you out because it was just like, look what I could do. Or like you, you recover from it. And that's what I was reminded of reading this. It's like, why do people do this and then of course the pointlessness of it becomes the point you know in this weird like self-fulfilling cycle of like it's dangerous it's dumb therefore i'm gonna do it and that becomes meaningful in some capacity yeah it's too bad because i think free diving as a concept as opposed to like snorkeling is cool like free diving in a coral reef or something where you're not encumbered by anything but it's like we say it's so meditative and like, you know, holistic, but they're still trying to reach these aggressive markers. You know what I mean? It's like, we have to break every record. We have to compete against each other rather than just like, I'm going to go down for a dive and come back in 
30 or 40 feet, which is still a ton. I mean, these people are diving so deep. I'm trying to like 250 feet, 300 feet, many hundreds of feet. Yeah. I mean, they're down for, for up to like three, four minutes holding their breath. And yeah, and that's really when the article to me got super interesting is when it started to describe um, what happens to your your internal organs. And, you know, essentially your lungs shrink down to the size of apples in your chest because the compression is just crushing <laughs> and there's no room. For, I, I, I mean, that just sounds miserable, but <laughs> I, it seems like these people are high. I mean, they come up with these smiles on their faces, even when they're unconscious and you're like, oh, there's something going on there. You know, it's like the, it's like an extreme runner's high or just like doing a lot of drugs and killing a crap ton of brain cells. Um, I don't know, man. Like I would never do it. Uh, I don't, I don't think I would even watch it. Uh, but yeah, no, this is like the classic outside magazine article, uh, as far as I could tell in that it's like, yeah, look at these crazy people. And I'm sure that there were, you know, probably, 10 people that read this article and are now professional free divers because of this article, because they read yeah. it and they were like, hell yeah, I'm going to be that person. Um, I'm not that guy. So let me read this pair of paragraphs um, because I think this really encompasses the experience of reading this article and it, I found it enjoyable. So uh, here we go. So the writer's talking to some really good French free diver whose YouTube video I totally watched after this. I learned long ago that patience is the key to success in freediving, he says. You have to forget the target to enjoy and relax in the water. Neri smiles and runs his fingers through the mop of his of sandy hair, mentioning that he hasn't blacked out in more than five years of steady freediving. What is important now is trying to do the dive surface and have a smile on my face. That's what I did. Next paragraph. Not everybody is so philosophical. Blacking out is like shitting yourself, Sebastian Naslin tells me. It's an embarrassment to you and everyone around you. Fred Boyle, who became one of the first competitive freedivers in the 90s and is now retired, echoes Naslin. Honestly, I think the guy is a fucking idiot, he says of King. I thought he was dead. His coach thought he was dead. I've been freediving since 1990, and that's the worst I've ever seen. So it's like Ugh. this balance of, <laughs> you know, like, it's so meaningful. And then people being like, nope, you're doing it wrong. You're shitty. You, what an idiot you are. But they're also still doing it, right? Like judging each other is part of the sport. Right. Um, I mean, what I can say, what I can say in the sport's favor is that it's what I, you know, it's, it doesn't cost anything, right? Like there's no, <laughs> it's not, it's something, well, you know, seriously, because like what bothers me about yeah. like Everest or like, all this shit, you know, where these people are doing these extreme sports where they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars and hiring Sherpas to carry all their crap for them. And they have all this gear and they, they train and all these like, and it's like, there's so many better things you could be doing with that time and energy and money uh, and helping the world. But you're just obsessed with your own record keeping or something. That's what, and this it's like, all right, look, it's your body. You're not using any gear really, or, you know, the minimal gear and okay. Like if this is what you want to do and this is the the thing, the extreme sport, I appreciate that more than, than say like Everest. I don't know. Did you see that movie Everest that came out like six years ago, seven years ago? The movie, like the fictionalized version. Of yeah. The... It's a fictionalized version of, I think the Krakauer ex- <laughs> yes, expedition, right? Yes, I did right? see that. Yeah. Oh, it's awful. And the reason the movie's so bad is because it's like, you can't feel sorry. You can't really feel sorry for people who are like spending all this money and like have all this privilege going up and doing this thing just for the sake of doing it. And then it's like, storms hit, we're dying. It's like, yeah, okay. You know, and and as a film, like they kept trying to, I remember they introduced like John Hawks as this school teacher who's struggling and has no money and therefore his students raise the money. And that's like the only way they can raise sympathy for any of these people, because otherwise this is very simple. Like don't go on the mountains, guys. Don't care about (laughs) the world record, save your money for next year and spend a crap load and do it then. Like it's just hope it's, I don't know. And I feel like the movie just couldn't get around that as opposed to like, a disaster movie like Titanic, where it's like, they're just trying to ride, you know, a boat from one side to the other, and then it falls apart. But like when your disaster is completely a mission of your own 
construction or, or a disaster of your own. It's like, I don't know. Like the sympathy is just, it reaches a point where I'm like, sorry, I don't, I don't know if I feel that bad for you or right, I, I can feel bad for you and I can put myself maybe in your position, but I'm, I don't know. Um, so it's occurring to me now as, I mean, I agree with you on an Everest level, but like I've run a marathon. I've, I scuba dive. Like, do you have mm-hmm. any, like sense inside you of like I just gotta like achieve this physical or like nature-based milestone have you ever done anything like that uh yeah I mean you know I did a half marathon I trained for that and like yeah I I mean I I could see how that could become a thing but no like no I've never I've, I've also thought about like you know there's 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 five peaks around Los Angeles that apparently you can do you know you, you bag the peaks. It's like a hiking expedition. You know, you wake yeah, up, at, sure. you know, start hiking at two in the morning. You can make it to sunrise and you, you could do five of them in like five days. And I've thought about doing something like that, but no, like I've never been like a, like a milestone, like create mm-hmm. a milestone for myself that I have to achieve um, kind of physical person. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's maybe why this shit is so alien to me. It just doesn't, it doesn't fit my, my world. But I, I, like I said, I, I have no problem with people doing it, you know, when it's like them and their body or, you know, I don't know. I, I have to see free, is it free solo? The guy who climbed the, the documentary about the guy who climbed, um, El Capitan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like that, like I, I'm fascinated by it. Like, but I think there's a certain, it 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 takes a certain craziness, um, and in a, you know, and I think in some cases that's great, like that's a great insanity, and in other cases it's it's just competitive and it's just it's self destructive, um, yeah, you know, like anything, I guess. But yeah, the Everest the Everest stuff really bugs me because it's there, there's such an economic uh, factor, and um, and then the fact that there's all these expeditions, it, it, it's always white people going to some foreign country and spending a lot of money to, you know, have people carry their shit for them. Like that really bugs me. Like Kilimanjaro, um, yeah. all that kind of stuff. That, that It's like, what is the point? Like you're not really accomplishing much. Like do something within your own bounds and within your own means. I'm totally like, yeah, okay. Um, but, you know, but yeah, I know. I mean, you have, I remember you did a year where you were doing like a different marathon every weekend, right? That is an extreme exaggeration, but I ran, I ran one big race a month. So I did 12 or 13 that year. I did one marathon. I did the Tough Mudder and I'd like eight half marathons and then a couple of weird random like adventure courses. Um, And it was awesome. I mean, like (laughs) what I will say, like what I connect to with, with this sport is the mental aspect of, you know, being alone and like this, you're really testing your willpower. Like we really talk about these things in terms of physical endurance, but it's really mental endurance, which is, I think what people get addicted to. Once I crack the code on running and I think the code to crack on running is most people run too fast. Like they reach their physical limit first and then they're like, oh, it's horrible and whatever. But I was like, I'm just going to run really slowly And then I would think of each run as like a long hike or something that didn't bring up memories of like suffering in gym class. Um, (laughs) And it was really enjoyable. It was really, really enjoyable. And I will say like the day I ran the marathon was like one of the best days of my life because I was just like, I'm doing it. Um, Although I remember we talked on the phone right before I did it. Um, I was terrified beforehand. So then like that, that change from like terror to euphoria was, it was addicting. It was really addicting. And (laughs) I ran part of the marathon with this really, really annoying girl who was like, she was like, I'm running 50 marathons in 50 States. And this is my like 39th marathon. And I'm just intentionally running so slowly to make it so easy for me. And she just like chatted with me for like an hour um, and I was like, you are giving your life to this thing, you know, like yeah. this is your life now. Um, but in a way I do get it. Like being outside, being connected to nature and just like getting into this meditative state of pushing yourself to the next limit is fun to a degree. But that being yeah. said, I stopped afterwards and haven't run more than a half marathon since then. So I'm not super committed. 
I just have no endurance like at all. Like I've never been able to, to, to run far, to swim far to like, I just, I can do things fast and I can eventually get there if I like, you know, take lots of breaks. But no, my experience, like I love being in the outdoors and hiking and backpacking and uh, whitewater rafting and stuff like, like I love adventurous stuff, but to me, it's always about just the adventure and, yeah. and the experience of like the different landscapes or the, you know, the different climates um, and it, so the physicality is, is, is a part of it, but the physic, you know, it's not, it's not like a, it's not overcoming something within myself or, or achieving something, mm. you know, some record or breaking a barrier in my own. Maybe I should, maybe I should try it. I'm turning 40 this year. It's probably too late. <laughs> no, no way. Now, now I just, I, my body's just falling apart for the rest of my mm, life. So. I have to mention, um, since we're talking about endurance and then I think we should go on to the next one, but. I yeah. read the most amazing study came out this week. Um, I could not believe this, although I could believe this. Um, so there was a big study done about like the limits of human endurance and like metabolism, measuring it through metabolism and all this stuff about ultramarathoners and stuff. But the people who like are living at the limit of physical endurance are pregnant women. Like apparent, totally. apparently the physical experience of just being pregnant on your right. body is at the limits of human endurance. And it was like the most vindicating thing that I think all of my friends have ever heard um, yeah. because you're just so exhausted and you're like, why do I feel like this? But it's like you're running a marathon for nine months. So awesome. that was very exciting to read. That actually reminds me of that. That there's a section in the book we read uh, two episodes ago, the Jared Se uh, Jared Yates Sexton book, where he talks about uh, how women are way more fit for survival on the planet Earth than men. Do you remember this section? And he like yeah. cites these studies about you know, of course, women outlive men on like a completely cross cultural basis, and then. <laughs> that women also have more resistance to viruses and, and like men just get sick more and get cancer more and die younger. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating. It's like women are built to last and survive to be able to procreate. And, you know, the shit that women's bodies put up with, it's astounding. Well, one um, of the, like, I mean, this is jumping and more, more studies need to be done to prove this. But one of the things that's interesting that I read is like the fact that we might be able to do endurance sports like running or free diving or whatever other endurance sports there are is because women have to have that exactly that much metabolic power to have a baby. So right. your mom is the reason that you can run your marathon, you know? Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Pretty cool. Anyway, speaking right, of women. On. Yeah. So the, uh, Ned Zaman wrote an article for Outside called John and Ann Bender's Quest for Paradise. And uh, this, this article is the story of a billionaire hedge fund manager and his wife who decided to leave America behind and build a compound in the jungles of Costa Rica. <laughs> and uh, over the course of, I, I guess like, uh, how long were they there? Six years or something? They, maybe even longer. They, they were there for mm -hmm. years after building this, this compound, but they began to spiral into uh, some forms of mental illness and become increasingly paranoid and isolated until one morning where John was found dead with a bullet wound to his head and Anne claimed it was suicide even the, while she was in bed with him, but she was eventually charged with the murder. And um, Zeman's article is about him going to interview Anne and follows her, uh, the end of her trial, her first trial, it turns out, because I guess there have been subsequently two other trials. Um, but this is a really fascinating story. Um, what'd you think? Uh, anyone who's into the current true crime murder mystery, absolute fat explosion, I think would enjoy this story. I mean, totally. What I loved about this writing was how badly it. It made me want to see this place. I mean, this was some of the best setting writing I've like ever read, I think, um, just yeah. in terms of the house and the compound. Um, it's this like four story kind of castle 
um, that has no walls. So it's so crazy. Giant, giant monstrosity where like macaws and sloths are just making their way in at all times. But it also has like an outdoor elevator, whatever that is, an infinity pool. (laughs) um, (laughs) And their bedrooms outdoors. But so you get this immediate sense, like, this sounds so cool. Like, who wouldn't want to go there? Who wouldn't want to live there? This sounds amazing. But very quickly, you feel like, you know, who would want to live there? They're so isolated and yep. so lonely. Um, and I just couldn't get my mind off this setting. I mean, the the murder mystery characters, I, I mean, they're real people, but um, those are all pretty interesting. But, like, I would recommend this essay to people for the setting alone. It's just insanely lush and creepy and doomed yeah Um, what did you think i loved it i mean this is this article is like right up my alley um (laughs) i mean i I guess because i I mean i always love i love stories the the sort of like frontier mentality driving people insane do you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. anytime anytime uh people are like let's just get away from it all and build a house in the middle of nowhere. And then, uh, you know, nowhere ends up being somewhere that you don't want to be. Uh, I love that. Like that narrative is just great. I mean, it's, it's heart of darkness, right? It's Joseph Conrad. It's, um, it, well, it's, it's the colonial experience in general. Um, and, 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 but it's also still like a fantasy of mine. Like someday I'll be a billionaire and I'll be able to, create this giant, you know, awesome integrated into the wilderness experience where I can feel like I'm in nature, but still have all the conveniences of home. And so when I read something like this, I'm like, that's totally what I would do. And I'm, yeah, exactly. Like you said, 8,000 square feet home, like in the jungle with the animals. And I'm like, yes. And then you realize like, okay, well, that dream is kind of built on probably some pretty faulty premises, which, you know, namely that wherever you go in the world, you're going to get away from your own problems. Like that's Mm -hmm. just not going to happen, right? Like if you have mental illness and you're depressed or manic depressive or bipolar, you know, these, both of these, both the the husband and wife seem to be suffering from a couple of, like that's like going to somewhere beautiful with animals is not going to fix that. And then also just the, the, the sort of, you know, the, European white person colonial dream that isn't true. Like I can just go somewhere and pay people to be my chef and buy up as much land as I want and pay all these workers to build shit for me. And, and then I'll just be left alone. It's like, no, you can't, you can't move to a country like Costa Rica and not ingratiate yourself to Costa Ricans. You know, you can't, and you feel, I feel like I hear this story all the time of somebody you know, it, you know, it used to be the English in Africa or, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, Americans in Mexico. You hear all these stories of people like basically thinking that they can go somewhere where land is cheap and, uh, you know, the, the wine flows and live like kings. And of course, they can't because the, you know, the inequality or the tensions or whatever just inevitably bite them in the ass. And. And I kind of love that story. I love those stories because it's like, yeah, no shit. Like figure this out people. Um, But anyway, yeah. So this is, this, this story really, I loved it. Uh, There's like a movie from the eighties called Mosquito Coast. You ever seen that? Uh Uh-uh. Oh, it's great. It's uh, River Phoenix um, and Harrison Ford and Harrison Ford plays this, you know, uh, colonialist who has this dream of bringing ice to the jungles um, I believe it's in Africa. Um, I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but you know, and then of course he goes insane. I just love stories of people going insane in isolation on some sort of weird colonial like mission. And I feel like this, this was a modern day equivalent of that. Um, but I did, I mean, obviously I felt sorry for this being real life people. And, um, uh, but I don't know. I'm also very torn how I feel about her. Like I, which is a tribute to the article that I could enjoy it this much and actually walk away. Not, not sure if she killed him or not. Yeah. I, I, don't I know. know. It's a tough line to walk. Um, especially when the evidence is like that he died from a suicide wound in the back of his head. <laughs> right. <laughs> Normally I would be like, uh, you did it. It was you. Uh, but right. um, I'm like, what I've learned from all these things is I would be very tough. 
as a jurist. I, I'm always like, I think they did it. Um, but <laughs> there is enough doubt, you know, laid into this story and she is so charming. Like, I hate when people are like, the woman's so charming or whatever. Um, and this was a real show don't tell experience, um, which is a cliche, but real in this case where, you know, he indicates the writer indicates that he's, you know, is not sure what she's going to be like, but then as he's quoting her and interviewing her, she does seem like stable and remorseful and all of this other stuff. So it is, it is convincing. Her case is convincing. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. she was not, she kept, uh, I read about it uh, after I finished this, like she did keep getting retried, but I believe she is now back in America living free. So really? (laughs) Yeah. Oof. Yeah, I mean, I I wanted some more details. This article focused primarily on the trial, you know, ends up focusing on the trial and, um, and uh, you know, her guilt or non guilt. But uh, but I I I do I did want to hear more about the like problems with the neighbors and problems with the employees and problems with poachers, mm-hmm. like because that I, I I this could have easily been a full book and I would have devoured it. Um, I would I really want to know more about this 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 story. Um. Yeah, it's great. Um, you know, there's something about we've talked about when we were talking about the when we read um the Jack London and I was talking about the the value of of isolation and nature and the sort of encounter with you know the existential knowledge that comes from realizing you're just a physical body in a giant world that could crush you in a moment or a bear can eat you or whatever. Like that that fear and that that realization of your 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 size in the world is like so valuable to me. Um, but the flip side of that is if you take it to such an extreme, you end, you know, you could end up really, really miserable, you know, into the wild touched on this a lot too. This sort of like, where does that become uh, a a very unhealthy addiction or a very unhealthy way of living that, um, is not going to, not going to bring you much insight and instead actually bring you nothing but terror and misery. Um, I love that question. And I think, you know, I love, I love stories and books and poems and everything movies too, that explore that, that spectrum because I, I, it's fascinating to me. Yeah. One thing I think this essay does really well, and I think it helps with this like open tone that it ends on uh, is I'm sure there's a technical term for this, but it has these great little cliffhangers throughout the story, which is ridiculous because then you your eyes just read past the line and then go to the next section of the story. But um, those like the ends right before the breaks were all very satisfying to me so much so that it jumped out at me. So, for example, we're learning about Anne and John's relationship before when they were um, in Virginia, I think, or North Carolina or something. Uh, So here we go. Uh, Then it says, John, who was treated for a mild aneurysm in 2000, told Anne that once he racked up enough money, he would get out of trading, sinking much of his fortune into a bigger, better version of the green idol he enjoyed in Virginia. He told Anne he'd been scouting potential locations in Costa Rica and Brazil. I've already been to Brazil, she pointed out. End section yeah it's like (laughs) such good writing it feels like so cinematic so so scenic so cinematic not overdone just simple um and i it was very pleasurable to read but it did leave me with these huge questions like is she an international jewel smuggler is she a murderer oh yeah we haven't even talked about the jewels thing yeah it's so weird there's like (laughs) millions of dollars of jewels left around but it's also you know there's also this factor where he's like injecting her with stuff uh, because she has all these sort of weird physical ailments and he thinks he can cure them and she doesn't even know what he's injecting her with um so when they find her next to his, his dead body she's got all these infections and scabs and it was like Wow, and in, a, in in some ways, maybe this was a, an act of self defense if she did murder him. You know, she was really being—I uh, don't know. It's just, but you know, I, I, there's one section where I—I I forget who it is, but you know, somebody on her defense team or somewhere describes them as—I um, forget the, ter- the term. I don't have the article right in front of me, but you know, basically that they've reached this point of shared delusion, 
um, mm-hmm. where they just kept feeding each other's paranoia and delusion to such a, a dangerous place. Um, oof, chilling. I love it. Yeah, that's um, great. It, all right, let's, great let's move on to something more lighthearted. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Tuber by Wells Tower. So Wells Tower writes a, a, a first-person account of his adventure Maybe, maybe not very adventurous, but it's an adventure of some sorts. Floating uh, in this admittedly flimsy inner tube uh, for five days down different rivers of Florida. And he's just kind of hoping that uh, no alligators notice him. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you loved this article. Talk about this. I love this article. Um, I mean, really, essay. This one of all yeah. of them is the least like. Like, it's not really there to inform, although it does suddenly um, become informative about certain parts of Florida um, and environmental impact. But it's mostly a completely ridiculous essay that's overwritten in a way that's intentional um, about floating around in an inner tube. And I just I love this because I love the writing. Um, The story could be told a hundred ways i mean probably hundreds of people have done this exact thing um but the writer just chooses the most strange fun little ways to describe things i i need to find a good example but it's okay here um so he's getting into his inner tube for the first time um this is his description Just minutes into the tube's christening, I'm impressed by its hydrodynamism and zip. Spurring myself along with a kayak paddle, I can turn forth at a decent pace. There's only one problem. Each stroke swings me around about 45 degrees. Now clockwise, now counterclockwise. So I don't so much glide as swivel like a hockey puck under heavy English. Okay, two problems. When road testing the tube on the floor of my friend's shop, I failed to take into account that once in the water, my butt would sink down, down, down into the giant void in the center. Picture a toddler jackknifed rearward into a toilet. But this design flaw and the water's grottiness notwithstanding, the Wikivia redeems itself. And it goes on. But the entire thing is in that tone, um, yeah. which I just really, I really love. Like, it, this guy goes for it. He's chewing on every single phrase. Um, and one thing that I think is really brilliant about the humor in this essay is that he brings along his friend, a woman who's like paddling behind him in a canoe to help him out. Um, and he frequently gets back in the canoe because he's afraid of gators, but like she serves at comedically as this straight man who's telling him what an idiot he is the whole time, which I think is really useful because it keeps the essay away from being a completely self-indulgent exercise instead it's just like a 95 percent self-indulgent exercise but her role really really saves it (laughs) yeah his self-consciousness about how yeah i mean it's self-indulgent right and it's very like there's this hunter s thompson like look at me doing this stupid thing and aren't i funny in my hat vibe to it which it feels Honestly, it feels a little dated to me, which is strange because it was only written like, I don't know, 2012 or something. But it feels very like Brooklyn 2008-ish or like Mm -hmm. it feels like it it definitely feels like a hipster doing, you know, like, let's do the craziest Floridian thing I can think of. And if I reference John Cheever, it makes it okay that I'm just drinking beers in an inner tube, you know, and like... I'm smarter than your average person who just goes down a river. So my self-consciousness and awareness of how ridiculous this is therefore makes it funny. And that kind of like, like makes me roll my eyes. And, and, you know, like I obviously, when we read fear and loathing in Las Vegas came down pretty harsh on, on Hunter S Thompson um, at this point in my life. So that part, but I have to say for me, it was saved by the informative factor. Like I actually learned a lot Mm -hmm. When he, when he turns to this environmental, you know, when he starts describing the Floridian aquifer and how vast it is and how clear it is and how it was formed, um, that then I was like, oh, oh, wow, I've never thought about this. I didn't know anything about this. Um, and, and I guess when I realized like, oh, he's finding something to talk about here um, that 
that makes this essay not just like a let's pat let's pat you know ourselves on the back for not living in Florida and not floating down rivers or I don't know what I, th- I liked it more and then I was like okay like all of this is very you know self conscious and I also think I would have been I would have enjoyed it more if I hadn't seen photos for some reason mm-hmm. seeing photos that are accompanied with the article. Um, ruined it for me like I because because it's Mm. so wordy and it's so intentionally verbose and um descriptive and you know like what you just read is hysterical just in the word choices and like this intentionally you know highfalutin language but when you see it just like you know a white dude 30 year old white dude or whatever sitting on the inner tube you see uh, uh, the hat on you're like oh yeah that that was you there's nothing it it like takes away and i and i guess you know for other people maybe seeing the photos and then reading that language would be make it funnier but for me it actually hurt the humor like i i wanted my imagination Mm -hmm. to be all i had um so that you know when i when he describes himself as like a toddler sitting in a toilet that's the image I get, the sort of self-mockery that he's imposing on, you know, the, the, the mockery he's imposing on himself as opposed to just the ridiculousness of seeing the photo, which it is ridiculous. So in a way, I wish it had just been language. Yeah, I get that. I think that this voice would be unsustainable in a longer piece. I mean, it was pretty short and it seemed like designed for the magazine writing, right? So like actually the person that this reminds me the most of in a certain way is Bill Bryson. Witty, wittiness. And I like love Bill Bryson for a time, but then there was a point where I was just like, I I can't take any more of this voice. I can't handle him. Yeah, I can't do him either. I tried to read Walk in the Woods or whatever. I did read Walk in the Woods. And I remember that was my thing. It was like, so you set out to do this you know, hike the entire Appalachian Trail. You didn't do it by any measure. <laughs> like he, he completely flails <laughs> hiking the Appalachian Trail, but still published a book about hiking the Appalachian. And it's like, and he, I don't know. I just remember being like, why don't you, you, I, I don't know. I, that, that like failed mission storyline. I don't, it's, it's tricky for me. It's like, you either got to fail spectacularly and that's the point or succeed spectacularly and that's the point doing it sort of having both ways like this one obviously to a much smaller extent but certainly with bill bryson's a walk in the woods i was totally dissatisfied but you know i think that's just yeah so i think that this kind of piece is what magazines are for you know is a reporter saying i'm gonna do this thing i'm not gonna make it my life's work for several years i'm not gonna have this giant pressure to produce a book and have to go on this book tour for it i'm just gonna try one thing and write the hell out of it. And I personally find that really enjoyable. You know, like I think this writer knows a ton about these kind of landscapes and other similar sports or adventures, but he's just honing in on this one tiny thing. And he's doing some cool stuff like in between the humor, you know, he never pauses to say like, these are the kind of people that go tubing. He doesn't pull back with that authorial voice. But what he does do is this paragraph. So his his tube has been criticized before this paragraph. While my own capacity for amazement is waning, my superb invention, oh, my superb invention, I would like to inform the proprietors of the ITC, is so enthusiastically admired by my fellow tubers that I'm having, that I'm to have no peace for the entire four mile float. Seconds into the ride, two young women from St. Augustine beckon me into their flotilla. We enjoy a cozy interlude until a thickly built friend of theirs comes by and says, I want that tube in a manner that is not unmenacing. I break away and into the path of a kayaking lady who pronounces mine the Cadillac of tubes. A bespeckled professor following behind her describes it a touch sneeringly as an interesting contraption. Even a fearsome river stud in a straw cowboy hat reclining on a little inflatable yacht Trailing a miasma of marijuana fumes, a zoftig beauty on his arm, pauses to tell me that he deems the tube a pretty badass setup. He just, like, it's about the tube, but he just described, like, seven different kinds of people that are spending their time tubing in Florida. Like, that's pretty, that's pretty good. That's pretty good, you know, to have the restraint not to, like, generalize about Floridians or tourists. But just to go one by one, what do each of these people say about a stupid tube? But I, oh, I totally Florida. get how this could be overkill. I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous. I'm never going to be like, 
oh, I'm going to wistfully remember this stupid tubing piece I read and read it every year on right. Christmas. No, it is, it's not right. that kind of thing. Um, but to spend half but, an hour I mean, of your yeah, life. Yeah, I, I mean, at its yeah. best, it's it, it, we're talking about David Foster Wallace, and you know, like that—that yep. that is what he did best, and did it to such a degree that, uh, you know, a supposedly fun thing I'll never do again. I do read every Christmas or once a year. <laughs> I need to read that article, you know, read that essay again because it rem- it's so genius, and the insight is so. Um, you actually, you know, there's there's insight there. You can actually take it away. Whereas this is this is much more of a, just a a fun you know, sort of fluff piece no. with a, a funny tone. There's no, but, um, I would say the only insight here is that you can have this absurd experience and then suddenly be in the most beautiful place you've ever experienced. Right. Which is very meaningful. You know, that's the, that's the hidden jewel in the middle of this piece. Um. All right. Well, that was a couple of pieces from Outside Magazine, which is a fun ass magazine, especially one to get, delivered to your house in an old-fashioned way although they will try to constantly sell you sneakers and camping gear i, I now i just want to come up with my pitch for outside magazine I, I don't know what it is yet maybe i'll maybe i'll go and and you know dog mush I'll, I'll combine my jack london love with some sort of northern adventure maybe i'll live as a dog for a while <laughs> uh, you know, we'll, we'll see something <laughs> what would be your outside magazine pitch oh man your whaling adventure, know. your ship whaling ship adventure was pretty close. Yeah, You've also got Galapagos. Love, You've done a lot of it. I would love to I would love to do a whaling thing. Not killing whales, but I would love to do a whale related thing. Um and I don't know. Lately they've had a few issues like who hasn't about unplugging and stopping looking at screens all the time. And I feel like as far as personal experiments and experiences go that's the one i need like i don't have a specific outdoor adventure i just would love a writing excuse to not be such an indoor cat you know yeah yep she said while recording her podcast (laughs) on my phone which is sitting on top of a tiny video game console next to my computer yeah it's it's crazy yeah yeah there's a one of the issues on my nightstand is about rewilding the american child and i'm excited to read it oh okay well i'm gonna go buy that right now (laughs) yeah i figured you might (laughs) um but man yeah i have to think of a pitch something something good yeah there's also i should say we didn't we didn't uh select any but there's a lot of great women writers for outside magazine too so people should go check them out awesome Literary Disco is produced and edited by Justin Alvarez for Lit Hub Radio. You can reach out to us directly at, on Twitter at Literary Disco. Happy reading, everybody, and thanks for listening. Amen.